Hello, and welcome to Episode 8 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, our guest is Charlie Campbell, a roving correspondent for Time magazine. He lives in Shanghai now, but only listing that city in the title would seem to be a disservice to Charlie's experience. Indeed, the story we delve into the most is about Indonesian terrorism. Stick around for that to hear about the Ivy League for Jihad, the G.I. Joe of the Indonesian police force, and a pregnant suicide bomber. It's quite the hero's journey. Charlie will take us from Buenos Aires blue-collar London journalism, to exiled newspapers reporting on Myanmar, then across Southeast Asia and China. We also introduce a new question this episode, the story that got away. Thanks for listening, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Charlie Campbell. Just to start off, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. No, it's a pleasure. It's great fun. Cool. So uh, we usually start off with if you can just uh, set the scene a little bit. I'm here in Shanghai. It's at 10 o'clock in the morning on a, on a Sunday, just getting up for the day, eating some cold pizza for breakfast and a cup of tea in our apartment in the former French concession. So very close to Hunan Lu and Ferguson Lane in, in Shanghai. So it's a very nice part of town and very leafy and stuff. But it's horrendously hot and humid in Shanghai at the moment. It's, you step outside and immediately just start dripping sweat. It's been a, a quite a quiet week. I've I had three weeks in Europe and the U.S. just earlier in the month. I've been back to Shanghai and just kind of taking stock of everything and fitting in with a lot of admin which needs to be done and, and putting in a lot of prep for, for reporting trips which are coming up. Yeah, it, it's been quite a sedate week, really, not doing too much actual reporting, but hopefully uh, next month we'll, we'll be gearing up and doing a lot more. Cool. We'll start off just kind of biographical stuff. So first off, where were you born? Where are you from? Uh, born in London. So grew up in, in West London and Ealing, which is a kind of leafy suburb just from the end of the, the tube lines to the west of uh, central London. Uh, went to school in the, in the centre and then, yeah, grew up in a kind of normal London existence. Went to university in Glasgow, which was fantastic fun. And then, um, you know, a lot of journalists have this kind of the future mapped out and they always want to do it. I, I wasn't like that at all. I didn't join the university newspaper or anything like that. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do because all the people that wanted to be journalists were kind of very driven from a young age. And I, I kind of thought I missed that boat. You know, when you're, when you're that young, you kind of think that everything is passing by you and, and you've, you've kind of missed out on these opportunities. So um, after graduating university, I, I kind of thought that all the people that were going to be journalists were the ones who had like the work experience and they would work in the, on the local paper. So I just went traveling around South America, where I'd been before, and thought I didn't know what I wanted to do with the life, so I thought I'd learn some Spanish just to give you know, myself uh, extra strength to my bow and some language skills as I went out to South America. And um, so, wait, it, uh, at that point, was journalism even on your radar? I always loved writing, but the idea of journalism, it, it was kind of in the background, but I, I honestly thought that you had to have like a work experience already. And like, I didn't have anything like that. So I didn't know where I could possibly get going. So mm -hmm. I, I kind of convinced myself it wasn't a, a possibility. Then I went traveling in South America and then ended up picking up a local touristry newspaper in a bar in Buenos Aires. And I had this idea for a story. Still would have been about 21, 22 at the time. I had, a, had an idea for a story about volunteer operations, which were basically duping people. So you go to <laughs> people pay thousands of, of, of pounds to go to Costa Rica and help with the turtle egg collection and this kind of stuff. So you help breed sea turtles, which are endangered. Mm -hmm. But they only breed for two months of the year. 
And these operations run all year round. So basically, you get all these people just turning up there, paying £5,000 and sweeping paths and just basically, you know, doing up shacks <laughs> and actually not doing, you know, paying good money just to do nothing really related to turtles whatsoever. And I had, I had a few friends who had fallen foul of this and been duped. And so I pitched a story about the, uh, this newspaper, which is only on a second edition. At that time, it was called the Argentine Times. Now it's called, it's still running in a different guys called the Argentine Independent now. And yeah, and then they, the, the editors loved it. And so I wrote it. And I had a, a friend in one of the local bars who was a, uh, a successful journalist who was worked for a paper in, in the US and had been embedded in Iraq and stuff. And he gave me a 101 on how to write a new story over some beers and basically edited my first draft. Yeah, and then they loved this story. And so that's where I started. I kept on running for them. And then eventually I actually had the experience, you know, the work experience, which I thought I needed to be a, a journalist. And so then my editor encouraged me to go back to London and do a course. Yeah, so that's what I did. I, I did the same course which she did before she started out on the road at Lambeth mm-hmm. College. And then that's... Land- uh, Land- Landoff, Lambeth, what is Lambeth, it? So. Lambeth College, it, it, it's by Stockwell Tube Station in, um, in South London. So it's a very kind of blue-collar college, a lot of vocational trainings and stuff. Not not, not very affluent at all, but it, it's a very good journalism college. But it's very targeted at local journalism. So it's all about local council regulations and very tough on legal stuff like defamation, contempt mm-hmm. of court, these kinds of things. And, and it's a good training for just local journalism, sort of getting the nuts and bolts out of council documents and, and speaking to uh, mayors and local representatives and, and sort of the, the nuts and bolts of, of local journalism in the UK, which basically revolves around parking disputes and uh, school catchment zones. I mean, and so that was basically it. So, we, we, <laughs> but, we, uh, so wait, wait. Uh, you, how, how long had you been traveling around South America just to get some idea, like a year? Or you were there a long time? or? Yeah, I, I took a year out after university. I didn't know what, what I wanted to do. I remember graduating university and going to the careers fair for graduates and then going around uh-huh. and, and, you know, thinking that, you know, I had a, a 2-1 degree and that I'd be like, you know, this uh, hot catch which everyone would want to employ and give loads of money <laughs> to and then wandering around to careers fair and oh, there's just nothing very exciting. And I remember uh-huh. going up to, I think it was some pharmaceutical firm had a stall and wandered up there and then they were like, oh yeah, you can join in on this salary and if you're based in somewhere in the Northern Ireland and, and it was basically just a sales job and it'd be like telephone sales. And I was like, bloody hell, I, I just did four years of, you know, four years of university and worked my ass off to, to get a telephone sales job in Northern Ireland. So um, yeah, that was a bit of a shock. So then uh, yeah, I decided to go traveling and see what other opportunities would present themselves. But I still wasn't thinking properly about journalism at this time. And when you, you pick up this paper in Buenos Aires, were you even like properly living there at the time or you were like in a hostel and happened to, and this all think, happened about? Uh, I think I was renting an apartment with some friend which I, I randomly met. Either that or I was still in a hostel. I was in a hostel there for a while and then um, got some proper digs. I mean, it was personally lucky because it was in Buenos Aires. It was right after one of the collapses of the currency. So it was extremely cheap. Uh-huh. There. So, um, yeah, living living the high life on, on their you know, unfortunate economic circumstances. But, uh, yeah, it, it was very much happenstance. Like, I just picked up this paper, and, was, and this paper was only on the second edition. It was an uh, English woman who remains a good friend, uh, Christy, and, and her 
partner had started this this newspaper. They just decided to get out of the UK and then go out to Argentina and, and to, to start this paper. And, and it did well for, for um, a good while. Cool. And wh- what did you study as an undergrad? Uh, politics and philosophy. So I really did not want to get a job of any sort. <laughs> sure. Just curious, University of Glasgow, is it unusual for somebody from England to go to Scotland for university or is that completely normal? That's pretty normal. I mean, uh, especially because in Scotland you get one extra year of university, like the English university course is generally three years, but in Scotland, uh, they're four years because the Scottish higher system, they don't do A-levels, which is our equivalent SATs. They do something called hires where they finish a year early. So if you go from England to Scotland, then basically your first year is sort of catch up. So it's a complete loss. And so it basically gives you an extra year of just drinking and partying. And my, my, my dad is from Glasgow anyway. So um, he was uh, okay. up there and we, we discovered the roots. But oh, no, no, um, Glasgow was a, a fantastic city. I think I believe I was the first person from my school to ever go to Glasgow University. So I went to a, a, quite a posh school in London, but I wasn't really that applied to all focused on my subjects and I did quite badly in my exams which is why I ended up going to, to Glasgow but yeah so so I, it wasn't usual for someone from my school to go to Glasgow that's for sure gotcha gotcha um and what what did your parents do out of curiosity but dad's a doctor he's just he's 83 years old but he's just retired this week after realizing that he's working himself into an early grade well not early grade but he's working himself into a grade <laughs> um so uh-huh. he yeah He's, he was still working in private practice up until this week and then decided that he just had enough. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, yeah he, he's an um, obstetrician gynecologist. And my mum used to be a nurse. She was a nurse when they met and then ran private practices in, in Harley Street and stuff. It's called a more of a uh, managerial position. And eventually quit to look after. There's four of us. So I'm the youngest. There's two older brothers and one older sister, all of whom live in the UK. So it's a, quite a big family. Oh, yeah. Wow. Any of your siblings gotten into writing? Or what do they do? My oldest brother is an engineer in Cambridge. My sister's the next one is a doctor in Edinburgh. The mother brother is a pilot working out of London now, but he used to live in Hong Kong and, and various places. So uh, yeah, no, very diverse uh, professions across the family. They're, they're very much pushed me into being a, a doctor. That that was the plan that I would be a, a mm. doctor. Yeah, I was always kind of like roped into this this destiny. It was actually my sister. My sister just graduated from medical school when I was embarking on my A levels and looking to be a doctor. And she took me aside and was just like, "Charlie, just don't don't do it. It's a horrible <laughs> life. It works to the bone. You get treated like shit. You just you know, it, it's just not do anything else. Just don't be a doctor." And so I was like, "Great!" That that gave me the the perfect get out clause. So I decided that I wouldn't do medicine. And, yeah, I'm very happy that I didn't. So what do you think it was that appealed to you about journalism? Was it this idea of seeing the world or was there something else about it? It, it was definitely about seeing the world. So I, I, I definitely wanted something where I could travel and go anywhere and work. And so that's why yeah, journalism ended up being the perfect fit. Sure. Gotcha. So you come out of, uh, I guess, a certificate program or something like that, a couple of years or something at uh, the journalism program? Um, it was pretty short. It was a certificate. So you get a certificate when you um, finish the course, you do an exam, and then you go and work for a local newspaper for two years. And at the end of those two years, it's kind of a, like an apprenticeship. And then you take another exam and then you are you call the NCE and then you are a bona fide um, local journalist and you're meant to get a, a pay rise as well. I'm, I'm actually, I'm surprised that I didn't know this at all about you. So you you did, you go through this kind of blue collar program and you do come out and you go and do reporting on local issues. What what was the paper? It's called the Wadsworth Wood for Guardian. It's in, in East London, right on the Essex border. Basically, if, if you look at a tube map and see the red line, the central line, and there's a, a loop at the east end, it's basically all of that loop. It was a fantastic introduction into journalism 
system and, and what middle class Londoners care about, basically, which is, like I said, school catchment zones, parking disputes, traffic. It was great fun. And I, this is where I met Crystal, my wife. So um, oh, we, wow. she, she, she joined the paper about six months after me. And so we worked together as colleagues for uh, a good year or so before we started dating. And uh, yeah, no, it, it, it was great fun. There was, we spent a lot of time in court as well. There was lots of, probably a number of pedophile cases in, in the <laughs> So yeah, I spent a lot of time in court. There's lots of, uh, lots of minor celebrities as well all growing up in, in Essex. So there was a good mix of weird kind of like celebrity gossip, tabloid stuff, and, and a bit of crime and, and so forth. But it was a real lesson on, on generating news. Our readership was like 5,000 people. So we had the London Borough of Redbridge. We had a third of that was our patch, basically. And so nothing really happened. Every time you know, there was new um, housing development or something which went up, we'd be like, get the plans to the council, then go out to the um, local, the neighbours, and just canvas them and see what they thought and, and see if we could find a few disgruntled people to stand in a photo and to object to it. Or sometimes if they really enjoyed it, we'd try and go the other way. And then this is a model of, of you know responsible development and stuff. But it was it wasn't about sitting back waiting for news to happen. There was no news, so we, we definitely had to go there and, and try and um, actively speak to people and, and canvas the neighbourhood and, and sort of ring every drop of news out of the patch which we could. Which is very different to now when you know my patch is Asia. <laughs> just, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a slightly different scale of news gathering exercise. How, how big was this paper that you were there? Crystal was there. Like d- papers that have five thousand circulation, like some of them are real skeleton crews. Although maybe um, that's more these days than back then. I realize it's been a few years. Yeah, no, looking back on it, it was surprising that it was so well-staffed. But we had, I think, a team of five on the paper. That's just for the news, so because they kind of shared sports and and features across the wider (coughs) network. So, yeah, the rest of the team were working still in in journalism at various places in in London to keep in touch with them. It it was a really good close-knit team. We laughed a hell of a lot. We were constantly just winding each other up. And and there was a real kind of British, the gallows humor kind of sense to the work as well. Everyone was constantly jibing each other and making fun of the ineptitude of the police, which was a constant thing. There'd be police raids where we get a tag along on and, and stuff, and then but then you end up finding people. You know, the person they were trying to arrest was actually hanging outside the window for five minutes while they searched his apartment. Then he ended up like <laughs> off and, and breaking his legs and stuff like that. Horrific. But then, you know, very interesting just to be close to the community and, and actually witness a lot of what's going on firsthand. I get close to ca- you know, counsellors and had all sorts of weird and wonderful counsellors who got up to which shenanigans and oh, there's the expenses scandal I don't know if you're in the UK where there was a leak of all the ex- MP's expenses and our local MP at the time was very into that and we ended up digging up a lot of stuff on him and he had to resign so <laughs> yeah it, it was a fun interesting time it's, I mean, it's hard to think that it was only two years actually because so much happened during that time and it was so informative absolutely learnt a lot uh, but also saw a lot of the bad side of British journalism there's a lot of you need to get this quote and then you run off and you interview 10 people you know, 20 people uh, until you get this exact quote of, of what you wanted to say you know not what do people think which is the way it should be done but like I, I need this quote every time it was Christmas you'd be phoning up for the organ transplant organizations and, and, and you're desperate to find an organ transplant in your area so you could get the quote this is the best Christmas present I could ever hope for uh, that was always <laughs> 
the, the ultimate goal uh, for Christmas from a transplant story. So it was just lots of weird, very tabloid journalism sort of tropes which you had to navigate. Huh, that's funny. You did it for two years, and you said after two years you're usually supposed to get a raise and stuff, and it sounds like that didn't happen. So did you leave because uh, of that, or, or what happened exactly? Uh, it was it's the 2008 uh, financial crisis, basically. So uh, we... So I passed my exams. I got the raise eventually, but it was, it was deferred for a while because the paper was in dire straits. I say the paper was in dire straits. It was, it's, it's run by um, NewsQuest, which is part of the bigger American company. I forget the name now. So uh, 2008 happened, and there used to be a very clear route to getting on the nationals in the UK, whereas you work in the local papers for a couple of years, you get your NCE, and then you work night shifts on the nationals. And then, so you basically work two jobs and you blog yourself stupid. But then when the opening arrives on the nationals, you're there working the night shifts and they know you and have a, reputation, uh, have a relationship with you and so you're the first one in the door when the opening happens. 2008 happened and the, the Nationals cancelled all the, the night shifts, all the council work, all the contract work was just like gone. And all the people who I really looked up to within our local paper who had already been working on the Nationals night shifts and stuff, they all had their casual work cancelled and they were getting jobs in PR as a like spokesman for local NHS trusts and, and so forth and they're basically just quitting the game, quitting journalism, which was huge Usually um, depressing from our perspective, and we didn't really know where things were going to go. You know, there was constant layoffs. And when I when I first joined the local paper, there was a massive team of subs, a lot of whom had experience at the Sun and the, the News of the World and the Times and the Telegraph and the, all these big national papers. But you know, had kids and just wanted to reduce the hours, and so they basically fallen back to the local papers and stuff. But I had this kind of wealth of experience and, and news, and they're they fantastic journalists, and they really knew their trade. But then they all got laid off. 2008, they all went. And so inexperienced people like me were promoted into positions where we really shouldn't have had that influence. We didn't even know what we're doing, but we were just like told to grab the ball by the horns and, and run with it and, and put out this paper. And that's what we did. And we put out the paper every week. There wasn't really a sense that there was anywhere to go. And so Crystal and I, we decided that we'd go to Thailand and, and start writing, tra writing travel guides. So yeah, we quit. Uh, and we both quit on the same day and decided booked a flight, a one-way ticket to Kuala Lumpur and decided that we'd get out and go to Asia. And I actually wanted to go back to South America because I had contacts there from, from my time to Buenos Aires and everything and I learned a new bit of the language but Crystal she was keen on, on going to Asia she had some contacts in Thailand and she was working two jobs at the time and I was happy to do that it, uh, it kind of made more sense there's more interest in Asia generally than South America I knew that and so I was perfectly happy to go out to Thailand in hindsight she was like so many things completely right you had both been to Asia before at that point or no I had been in Asia before many, yeah many times after school I took a year out and I went traveling around Asia and this is also how how I actually managed to get the travel guide writing job, which I eventually got, it was because of my Asia experience. Proved to my parents that my, my year out after school wasn't a complete waste of time because it was, because I'd visited Indonesia and Malaysia and Singapore and Thailand, Vietnam and Cambodia, just traveling as a, as a student that I was able to get um, this job as running this uh, website of uh, travel guides in Thailand, which is what eventually we ha happened when we moved to, to Chiang Mai. I traveled not really working, just as a, as a kind of uh, yeah, still, it's a pretty ballsy move to move to Thailand and try to get into travel guide writing. But it obviously worked out. So you were living in 
Chiang Mai, you said? It worked out very well. So we got a one-way AirAsia ticket to Kuala Lumpur. I think it was like £150 or something. It was ridiculously cheap. <laughs> and then we travelled up from, from Kuala Lumpur. We had like a month off just travelling and sitting on islands. And then a friend of mine from Journalism College at Lambeth College, he'd already moved to Chiang Mai and he was working for XR Burmese Media, the Democratic Voice of Burma, up there. And he sent me a job advert for a web editor for a group of online travel guides called the One Stop Series. And so I applied for that and the boss decided to give me an interview in Bangkok. So that was our goal. And so we had this interview date set in Bangkok. That was one month away from our uh, arrival in Kuala Lumpur. So we basically just shimmied our way up to uh, Malaysia and, and Thailand and, and ended up in Bangkok. And I had this job interview and it went well, but the job wasn't quite ready. So he asked, invited us to both to work casually, sort of like part-time for him on his business, running travel guides and stuff in, in the meantime. And so, yes, after one month of arriving in Asia, we both had full-time jobs and we were living in Chiang Mai and caught up with my friend from Jonathan College who remains a good friend and yes we were living there it was fantastic yeah and so you and Crystal went from working at the same uh, local newspaper to working at the same website is that right yeah well, she basically I got put in charge of the the, the website because the company had its own websites called the One Stop Series which basically cover all of Asia um, but they had several websites covering Thailand and my job was to launch another 15 or so over Southeast Asia so I had to write some myself and find freelancers in different places and edit and, and, and lots of SEO and sort of technical stuff, which I had to learn on the job. And then there's the other side of the company, which basically writes travel guides for clients. And Crystal ended up getting a job overseeing all of that. So we were working with the same company, completely different sides of it, which worked out perfectly since we didn't have to step on each other's toes too much. It was a, a good fun time. Cool. How long did you do that for? I think that was that for three years or a couple of years. Um, we were four years in Thailand, yeah, in Chiang Mai altogether. Um, um, so I think that for a couple of years, then we, we were buying an apartment in Chiang Mai. For some reason, we decided that it would be a good idea to, to <laughs> um, plow our music salaries into, into buying an apartment. So I needed extra work, extra money um, during that time to pay for the apartment. And so I ended up working part time for an XR Burmese media magazine called The Everybody, which was great fun. It was kind of my ticket back into legitimate journalism, as it were, rather than just travel guides. So I started working for them part time as a copy editor. And once we had paid off the apartment. I enjoyed it so much that so I quit the um, travel guide job and worked full-time for the Irrawaddy and just started working on, on Burma stuff, which was fascinating. And then it was a great time to be working on that subject because a lot was happening. Aung San Suu Kyi was released and they had their first democratic elections. She was elected to parliament. And there's all this rapid period of, of change, which I just happened to you know join during a massive amount of international attention on Burma at a time because of it. So yeah, I really lucked out to be thrown into the mix at that time. What years was that? Just because I went to Myanmar in, gosh, 2013, I think. It would have been like 2011, 2013, I think. Okay, yeah. Because I was familiar with the Irrawaddy because there was a time when I was going to move on from my job at this the magazine I worked at with Don uh, Wineland, who was on the podcast before. And I was like, oh, Myanmar is blowing up, it seems like. Uh, I, I went down there and did some freelance stories. And I read a ton of stuff before I went down. 
one. Um, then obviously the Irwadi and there's another one. Uh, of course I got down there and I was like, Oh, this is an incredible backwater compared to China. And I turned around and, you know, decided to stay there, but they, they're still around, right? They still do good work as far as I know. Yeah. They are still around. What basically prompted our move to Hong Kong and my joining time was that with all the changes of happening in Burma, all of the external media decided to go back inside. They were able to go back inside before they were, you know, there was no free press allowed inside Burma and all the free press was broadcasting from the periphery into inside Burma. But then after the changes happened, there was an opportunity to move back inside Burma. And so they all did. And so that all the, all the Chiang Mai's journalists uh, community was basically decimated. So I had a, the choice of moving inside Burma with the Irrawaddy. And I was very keen to do that because I'd been following the story and then was invested in it. And it was an exciting time. And I was Crystal, who put her foot down, was just did not want to live in, in Yangon. She was like, I, this is just a bit too much of a developing nation experience and you know the, you know unsanitary conditions and the constant power cuts and stuff which is much better these days where it still is pretty pretty rough living and so that's why we decided to move to hong kong instead but yeah no, if it wasn't for her i probably would have i'll probably still be in yangon now yeah i mean i i went there and so it was 2013 i go there for like 10 days i read a couple stories but in that time i ran into three other journalists i knew from shanghai didn't plan on seeing them. They just happened to be there. Like every journalist was having this idea at the same time. But I think a lot of us did get there. And I went to a couple expat meetups and I kind of realized that there, the community there was the same 25 people and they would describe like seeing each other over and over again, like at the same weekly event. And uh, it seemed like a great story. But after Shanghai and the craziness there, I just couldn't, wouldn't have been able to move there. I felt like, so I guess I'm in Crystal's camp when it comes down to it. Yeah. Oh, no, no, she was definitely correct. I mean, in, in hindsight, again, it was definitely the right decision to move to, to Hong Kong instead of inside Burma. Yeah, it, it seems like in Southeast Asia, there are these kind of cyclical stories. So it used to be the Khmer Rouge trials. And so everyone is in Cambodia. If you're a young journalist, you go to Cambodia and you, you report on Khmer Rouge. And then Burma happened and everyone kind of like moved to Burma. And then so, yeah, it, 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 there was always a hot story in Southeast Asia, which all the young, hungry journalists are flocking to cover. And, and they, a lot of them do very well out of it. Like, uh, well, Don was in Cambodia for a while. Right. Yeah. Did you cross paths with him back then? Or when did you meet him? I didn't. So a good friend of mine, Dave Stout, who is now with AFP in Pakistan, um, he was actually best man at my wedding. His brother worked with Don uh, in Cambodia. And so they were friends from that time. And so when Don moved to Hong Kong with the SEMP, he was already friendly with Dave. And so then that's how we became friends. Gotcha. Okay. So you guys decide to move to Hong Kong and, and did you find a job there first or what? why Hong Kong? And how did you guys end up going there? Uh, we moved there for the time internship. I took the gamble of the coming up a 31-year-old intern at time. There's an internship program there in Hong Kong in the Asia Bureau, which is very highly regarded, and a lot of top top journalists now have done it. So internally, people like Emily Rawala at uh, Washington Post, Ishan Theroux also at the Post, and uh, internally Aaron Baker, who's still a uh, correspondent for Time, myself, Brian Walsh, who was the international editor for a time. So it was a, a very well-trodden path for people who wanted to join the company. So I um, applied for this, and then Emily was the 
associate editor in Hong Kong at the time gave me an interview and the job. And so we all packed our bags and decided to move to Hong Kong. And it was a very, very small salary, so stipend type thing. And so arrived and worked like a dog and really tried to make it a good impression. And it worked out after the internship was over. They offered me a job as a reporter to stay on for another year, which I did. And then got made associate editor and was ended up running the intern program when Emily moved to Beijing as correspondent. So that was good fun. So I was editing stories every day and, and running this team of interns and covering the news of Asia and learning a great deal. It's very different um, discipline from the everybody where everyone who's really the everybody is very much you know, a Burma hand and, and focused on the, the minutiae of the different ethnic armed groups which are fighting and the different factions and, and the different personalities have been sort of knotty world of Burmese politics. But then that time is very much big picture stuff and the altitude and, and giving the geopolitical significance and, and the US role and everything. So it was a very different style to come into, but a fantastic experience. I worked with some amazing editors from, from the get-go, which really helped. Right. Yeah, I remember Emily Ruhala from Beijing. Is she still in Beijing well, these days? No, she's just she's in uh, Washington. Just had a baby. Um, oh, wow. I was just in Washington to, to visit the bureau there um, a few weeks ago, and I was meant to meet Emily for a coffee. And, and then she said, suddenly out of the blue, about two hours before we were meant to meet, she sent me a picture of her holding her new baby daughter and said, sorry, you know, I'm, I'm afraid we can't meet. And I was like, oh, well, well that's a good excuse. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it sounds like a lot is new with her since the last time. I, I barely knew her. I met her a couple times, but still good to hear she's doing well. I remember the thing I was thinking about, and it is completely random. It is like it's about being in Yangon and being at one of these like weird expat meetups. And here's a story that got away from me that sounded like a really cool story, but uh, just never did anything with it was there are these law books. I guess Myanmar law system is very strange and like still founded in some ways on old colonial law. And I had heard something wild that there are only a certain number of these key legal texts that exist and they're all super old and from colonial times. And I've heard that when like a lawyer dies, everyone will like rush to their house in order to try to buy these extremely precious legal texts from them. And that just sounded like a great story to me. Um, Not that I ever even was able to look into whether that was true or not. I don't know if it's ever anything you've heard of. It it sounds like it's probably correct. But yeah, I've not heard that before. But yeah, maybe thanks for it. Maybe I'll get someone to look into that. That could be a fun story. Yeah, by all means, please do. Um, I'm (laughs) certainly not going to be back in Myanmar anytime soon. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. He, young lawyers into this this guy's house and is um, pushing past his distraught widow, trying to yeah prize the the books out of his hands. Yeah, that, that could be fun. So time. So I mean that that was obviously. I mean, would you say if you've had a big break? I assume being hired on as a full time reporter was it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I'm still in shock about that, to be honest. It was a massive break and just changed everything. And I'm still, yeah, kind of shocked that um, I get to work with all these amazing editors and journalists uh, daily. It's just fantastically lucky. Was there ever a time where you thought maybe journalism isn't going to pan out? Yeah, I mean, I basically retired from journalism when 
when we moved to Thailand. I thought, you know, I was writing travel guides. I, I was editor of the series, so a lot of my job was business and cultivating clients and working with, with advertisers and doing lots of tech stuff, sort of the back-end SEO. And this kind of a very unglamorous, more web-based publishing work. And so I, I don't really consider that part of things journalism as such. So I basically said that journalism was going to pay off and I was toying with launching my own websites and, and doing other stuff as a way of just making money and living in Thailand and, you know, enjoying a kind of very comfortable existence there. So, no, I, I, I'd pretty much given up on journalism as a career when I moved to Thailand. And then, then the everybody happened and that really re- rekindled my love for it because working on, you know, human rights issues and development and, you know, pipelines and dams and protests and going on reporting trips into, you know, rebel-controlled territory and then interviewing opium drug lords and stuff. I mean, it was, it was like, wow, this is actually really interesting stuff. And so it was that point when I kind of fell back into journalism, but it wasn't a kind of conscious choice or I kind of decided to, to change direction. Um, it's more because we were buying this bloody apartment and I needed extra money. And so that's why I took the second job at the everybody. But yeah, lucky I did. Do you guys still own an apartment in Thailand? We, we do. Yeah, I, I probably shouldn't admit that because it'd probably be used as leverage against me next time I interview Priot or, or something. That's pretty cool. My big question is, I mean, I obviously cover a pretty big patch, Brazil, but you cover Asia, like all of Asia, or at least East Asia. It's a huge swathe of territory. And at this point, you're one person for a magazine, right? Uh, do they have other correspondents there? I'm the only one in mainland China. Uh, I'm, I'm the only correspondent officially, but we have a team in Hong Kong of very good journalists, a few editors, and who cover a lot more of Southeast Asia and stuff like that. So I, I keep on trying to get back to Southeast Asia, but they keep on trying to push me away. Yeah, I mean, I'm the only one in the Chinese mainland, so I'm only one who's allowed to report from China and then officially by title East Asia Correspondent so the careers in Japan is also my patch but yeah just because of bandwidth and different people working on different stuff I mean I was in India for the Dalai Lama I was in uh, New Zealand for the Christchurch shootings so yeah it's the patch could be much bigger so yeah that's my question and such a broad remit how do you decide what to cover and where to focus your efforts it's tough it's also liberating away because we can't cover everything so I don't feel anyone could really shout at us for, for not covering a story because it's like well I mean we're covering so much stuff then you know there's nothing which we have to cover you just try to follow the, the news pattern at the time and, and kind of feel for what is most important at any time and, and what could really inform readers about the world in a way which they've not heard before so it's, it's tough I mean some stuff does obligate reporting and other stuff you just try and pick stuff out and, and you know a lot of it is what people are not reading elsewhere so you try to be uh, you know clever but then you know it's that's also it's hard to get stuff past editors in new york who aren't so invested in the region and so um, you know and quite rightly have the, the eyes focused at the various crises which are engulfing the u.s at the moment so um it, it, it's tricky but yeah i mean it, it's both a blessing and a curse you could say because yeah we don't have to cover um, anything but um at the same time it, you know it's just an, a massive amount of news and, and stories that we have to kind of sit through and, and you know play triage with right in the in the english language are there many magazines still around that have correspondence out in asia i'm, I'm struggling to think of any I, i'm just curious if you know if there are others that exist i presume business week would have some okay the economist the economist has some but uh oh of course i don't think newsweek does the atlantic i don't believe they have any correspondence although they are um i think scaling 
filling up at the moment, but I'm not sure if they're actually going to be hiring um, full-time correspondents. But yeah, no, it, it's definitely a, a dying breed, that's for sure. Yeah, that's too bad. Do you worry about the future? I mean, I, I ask this in some form or another to any journalist, just with the direction of journalism going wherever you are, possibly not in the right direction. Do you worry much about the future of what you're doing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> in the broader scale, it's always been a worry ever since we got chased out of London because of the dying industry and ever since I joined Time, I, yeah, even in, in, in Thailand and Burma, I mean, the, the funding system of the Exabers Media was basically, it was never self-sustaining. It was based on, on the funding of, of governments, including US government, UK government, lots of Scandinavian governments um, and, and everything else. So it was always on a, in a precarious situation. And, and then ever since I joined Time, I, mean, I joined Time six and a half years ago, it was part of Time Warner. Then it got spun off into Time Inc. Then it got bought by Meredith. And then it got just got sold off again and, and bought by Mark Benioff and, and, and his wife. So in the time I've been at Time, it's been four different companies. And so there's... Wow. Uh, and it's been constantly downsizing, people being laid off and everything. But this is the only time now, since the Stakers takeover, is the only time when I've actually felt positive about the, the company as a whole. And it's suddenly on a, a firm financial footing, and we have an owner who is committed to journalism and wants to invest. And so it's, it's remarkable to actually feel positive about a company I work for, for for once, because we're, we're really lucked out. And the future is very, very bright at time at the moment, which is a very strange feeling because it hasn't been like that for any time which I've been at the company. So um, we'll work for any company, to be honest. So yeah, I'm extremely lucky to be at Time at the moment. That's great to hear. I didn't, I mean, I haven't followed it that closely. I did hear it had been bought by Benioff, but um, that's good to hear. Uh, I've got some other questions there. They're a little bit more all over the place. Where to start? What do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? I don't know, I suppose empathy, uh, just able to see stories from different points of views, I suppose, and then just being quite sober about stuff. I don't get too uh, emotional or caught up. I kind of see the job in very kind of pragmatic ways and it's like we need this we need this we need this and just get it done it's not rocket science you know there there is a formula to a good story i think you need certain things and just about producing them in a, in, a, in a way and um yeah I, you know i always say to young journalists is make your boss's life easier you know don't be the guy who's making their life harder you've got an editor to take some of their problems away and you could just help them achieve their goals easily and, and not be a hassle then that's the best thing and i think that's probably the reason why i've you know survived this industry because I always find out what my editors want and try and give them that in the, with the least amount of hassle or problems. And I think that's just a good tactic for life generally. Yeah, I need to get better at that, honestly. I've pro I was thinking lately I've been complaining way too much. And I know at the end of the day, like, it won't, this story or that story won't matter. I mean, it's if the people think you're good to work with is uh, what matters at the end of the day, even if you get big stories. So I've been trying to do more of that. But at the same time, you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah, for too long in my career, I was kind of a, a doormat. And I was always a guy that, you know, oh, don't worry, he, he won't complain. And then I, I started complaining and I started getting more stuff. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I think there is a balance. I mean, I think you, you do have to put your foot down when it really matters. At the same time, it's yeah, not good to be, you know, known as a whincher. Right. And then, I mean, I obviously wrestle with this question, but uh, when you've been abroad for like years and years now at this point, do you ever think about moving back to the UK? Not really, just because the, the state of journalism in the UK is pretty dire. I mean, you look at the tabloid newspapers and stuff, and I, I try and pitch myself working for them, and I, I really can't see it. I mean, there are some great newspapers, a great journalists in the UK, but the overall state of the industry isn't terribly appealing. I mean, it, it would depend on the job. If I was offered a great job in the UK, I would, I would definitely consider it. But, you know, 
uh, we're economic migrancy in a day. We came to Asia looking for work, and then we found work, and so we'll, we'll go anywhere with this work. But you know, I'm a better, a better opportunity. But uh, I don't see going back to the UK as really a viable option at the moment. But who knows? You know, parents getting older and stuff. So maybe some other event will force our hand. But we, 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 I just counted up the other day that in the ten years we've been in Asia, we've had ten different addresses. We've moved house ten times. So we're quite looking forward to actually betting down and staying in Shanghai for, you know, three, four years maybe and just not moving around so much. But at the moment, that's our priority. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in Beijing alone, I think I had five different addresses. <laughs> so, yeah, I get how that goes. I had forgotten about that. Just So just to walk through real quick, you had been in Hong Kong, then you moved to Beijing and now you're in Shanghai? Yeah, so we were three years in, in Hong Kong and then Emily, uh, who hired me in Hong Kong, she joined the Washington Post after being on patient correspondent for time and so that opening presented itself and i applied for that and got the job and so we decided to move to beijing and so yeah that was a, a great experience and you know got to meet amazing people like you and viviana <laughs> and yeah so that was good fun and then after three winters in beijing we were kind of like let's maybe have a change and so we always enjoyed visiting shanghai and it's just a very different city and so we decided to pitch the bosses with to move to shanghai and they were more than happy to accommodate and it was fairly painless thing to do so yeah we decided to, to move to shanghai i mean beijing is a great city but it's just quite unrewarding from a political standpoint because as you will well know the government don't really talk to you and what's the point basically i mean if you know if you're in washington you can speak to lobby groups or civil society or ngos or think tanks or congressmen and sit at the white house but in beijing there's none of that so it was just basically after three years it's kind of like yeah i've got the sense of this place but maybe there'll be more interesting stories coming out of shanghai there's certainly more you know u.s investment there reporting on the trade war and stuff and then how American businesses are faring in China. It's arguably a better place to be. So yeah, and, and more for lifestyle as well. Is yeah, it's a little bit better and yeah, it's just more comfortable place to live. So yeah, we, we decided to, to give Shanghai a go. Yeah, I love Shanghai because when I first moved to China, I lived there for two years, and and when I was a study abroad student years before that, from Nanjing, we would go to Shanghai and like just blew me away back then. So like Shanghai still feels the most like home when I go back to China, I would say. So Shanghai is great. How long were you in Shanghai? Only only two years is the shocking thing. I was in Beijing probably twice as long. But yeah, I totally feel you on Beijing being like uh, strangely not rewarding. Like I only get it now that I've moved to Brazil, how open a seat of government can be. And like I, I didn't realize how it could be living in Beijing and how we were like playing on hard mode basically there. I worry that if I ever move to a democratic capital again, you know, I would have lost all these skills about uh, building sources and, and me meeting people and hobnobbing and stuff because it's just, it's just not something which happens in any kind of normal way in, in China. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, that's why it's so refreshing to get out and report in Southeast Asia, you know, in Thailand, the Philippines, even places with very, very autocratic authoritarian governments, but people will talk out against the regime and, and, and be quoted on the record and, and put their views down and don't mind using their name and stuff because they're pissed off. But in China, it's just very, very difficult, I think. 
Yeah. I, I was just curious uh, if you ever had an example of a story that got away or a story that didn't come together for some reason or, I don't know, a reporting assignment where you got there and things went terribly. But does anything like that stick out in your mind from your years of work? <laughs> yes. Um, well, quite a few. But um, no, I suppose I've been quite lucky, really, that the stories tend to pan out in some form or another. But the one that really sticks in my mind is I try to do a story about human trafficking and the kind of commercialization of anti-human trafficking organizations, which is just a very sensitive topic because it's hard to criticize these organizations which are ostensibly doing a very worthy thing. But if you dig into them, a lot of them are very much self-promoting and, and getting quite fat on fighting modern-day slavery and, and this kind of um, stuff. And the genesis of the story was that there was a... I'll try to keep it vague because there might be legal issues, but there was a anti-human trafficking, anti-slavery activist in Southeast Asia who was documented in a book by a very well-known American anti-slavery campaigner. And we interviewed her and it turned out that his account of her story and, and her what she did was completely made up, was completely false. And we had her on the record of saying oh, this wow. and, so, and confronted him and he got very defensive and stuff and, and made all these very, very ridiculous excuses about it. And it, it was just kind of a window into this industry which, and you look at these indexes about, you know, modern slavery and they come up with these statistics, you know, they say, you know, there's never been more, you know, slaves at any point in human history as today, which is just palpably false. I mean, it depends, obviously, <laughs> it depends on how you define slavery and, and everything and human bondage and all this kind of stuff. But I mean, firstly, I mean, you know, slavery used to be legal. And so there was obviously more slaves during this time. And, and, and also, if slavery is getting worse every year, then why are we spending all this money fighting it? I mean, it's not doing it obviously it's not doing any good it's not actually working you know the, the, these efforts to combat modern slavery if they keeps on getting worse so it, it obviously comes down to moving the goalposts of how they define slavery and human trafficking and everything and uh, there's a lots of conflation with sex work because of the way which the American government is, is set up the American government will never give aid to any organization which condones or promotes sex work so you have to be anti-sex work by definition to get funding from the US government which means that NGOs that work with sex workers and trying to keep them safe and you know allow them to work in a safe way are automatically excluded. And, and there's lots of evidence to, to support in a lot of empirical studies which show that the rates of modern-day slavery, which have been reported in the media, uh, are completely fallacious. You know, it's made up. And so I, I you know, I, I dug into this story based on this one case of this woman whose story had been made up and had this pitch going. But it was just going to be very controversial because combating modern-day slavery is one of the few issues which both the in America the left and the right agree on the the right had very sort of conservative values and, and obviously the left are very much with the liberal mindset and everything so going up against all these organizations which have key backing would be very controversial and I didn't feel that at the time I had the backing for my editors to really go up against what was going to be a, a lot of blowback and so I basically just sat on the story and I didn't push it through no one was asking me to pursue it with any great impetus so it was an easy thing to do but I, I really think it's a good story in this conversation which needs to be had because the real victims and the real causes of human trafficking, and I'm not saying human trafficking doesn't exist, of course it does, and it, it's a terrible thing, but the real causes of it are being obfuscated by this sort of 
very pious obsession with sex work and prostitution and everything and conflating. When you think of human trafficking, what comes to your mind is a young girl being shoved in the back of a van and then being ghosted across the border and being shoved into a brothel. I mean, that does happen, but that's not the typical case of what human trafficking is. Human trafficking is, is about economic migrants having their papers and withheld by unscrupulous bosses and fleeing war zones and, and this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it was a story which I really wish I, I, I got to report properly, but it was just, it, there were going to be a lot of repercussions, and I just didn't think that at that time, it was quite a few years ago, so it was a different editorial team than it is now, but I didn't think at the time I really had the, the full backing to, to pursue it with the means that I should have done. Yeah, that's fascinating, though. I mean, I've obviously heard these stats on there being more slaves now than the, at any point in history and all this and that. I mean, I always uh, thought it was a little bit suspect, but it's one of those things, yeah, because it's this certain issue that, uh, you know, we universally should all get behind. You don't really question it, but maybe it should be questioned a little bit more than it is. But, I mean, it seems like it's something that's not going away. Maybe someday you can come back to it. I would like to, but it, yeah, yeah, it is tricky. It, it's more of, we had this this one chance with this rather unscrupulous anti-trafficking campaigner in the U.S. who was just, you know, making up lies, basically. And uh, yeah, I, I really thought that we should have held them to account. But it's just one of those things, I suppose. Sure, yeah. Obviously, you can't go back to that specific instance. And then just to talk about one or maybe two stories that you did that you're proud of, and just if you could walk us through. One one story I really, really enjoyed, because it was such a journey to report. It didn't even make it into the magazine as it happened. It was only on, on the website, but it, it was still um, great. was a story with Indonesia's first female suicide bomber, Yuvia Nuli, and so she tried to detonate a, a bomb outside the presidential palace in Jakarta. I think this was back in 2017, was it? Yes, 2017. And But she was caught by agents before well, she was on her way to... She just collected the bomb in her apartment and she was about to set out to the president's palace and she was nabbed. And then I, uh, I heard this story and I thought it was a fascinating case that I really wanted to interview with her she was in prison and i contacted i mean you know as you will well know i mean so much of a job as a foreign correspondent is working with fantastic local reporters who have the access and the impetus to know the, the culture and everything and I, I wrote to quite a few drinkers in indonesia and and maybe a canvas maybe nine of them and they all said no not possible wouldn't, wouldn't happen you couldn't possibly do it and i spoke to one who's become a good friend uh febriana federals and then she was just like yeah well it's possible but let's give it a go and so we decided to, to go on this mission to try and get this interview with this female suicide bomber and, and it was uh, just quite an epic, epic journey so I arrive in Jakarta and we go to the chief of police and the chief of the uh, detachment 88 the anti-terrorism unit and we petition them and, and send letters and just get completely blank they wouldn't speak to us so we decided to start reporting the story through the, the terrorism cells uh, the little ISIS cells which spring up all over Indonesia so first of all we went to a prison where some Islamic sort of fundamentalists had been arrested and they'd been arrested for sweeping. So basically when a bar or a beauty parlor or anything which they consider is, is you know, haram um, crops up, they'll, they'll do just sweeping action where so a lot of conservative hardliners will hang around outside the bar and stop people going in and stuff and basically harass it until it closes down. And so they, we, we knew some people who had been arrested for this action. 
And so we went into the prison and spoke to them, you know, bought them a, a lunch from the canteen outside, 50 cent chicken rice dish and chatted with them for a couple of hours in the, from their prison cell about their concerns and stuff. And then went to this famous boarding school in Solo, uh, the town in the, in the center of, of Java, where, where, where actually the president Jacobi comes from. But it's very, very conservative Islamic town. And there was a school there which is known as the Ivy League for jihadists. And it's where I think five of the, I forget the number, but a lot of the Bali bombers uh, had graduated from this school. And one of the, the head of the school is the son of a very firebrand, ISIS-supporting Indonesian ideologue. And he himself had been with al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, the head of the school. And he had, he was, according to the UN, he had probably filmed the 9-11 bombers' last war on testimony. So this he was quite a hardcore guy. So we turned up at the school, and because we'd visited this guy in prison who was known to the school the teachers agreed to give us an interview we're very reluctantly but he felt obliged to so he spoke to the teacher won his trust and i pulled the school and spent a couple of hours practicing english with the kids who were all bubbly and lovely and great and so after this they agreed to let us interview the head of the school this guy the former al-qaeda operative i forget his name i have it somewhere so he sat down with me and, and spoke to me for uh, a good half an hour about the school and what their beliefs are and stuff and, and what jihad means in their philosophy there's various ways to commit jihad it's not only about violence but it can also be about it's your eternal jihad and, and, and everything against doubts and, and being a good Muslim and this kind of stuff but I mean but it was that was very very interesting and as soon as we got out of the school we were getting a taxi straight to the airport to catch our flight and we got picked up by a taxi waiting outside the school and immediately the taxi driver started quizzing us like why are you in the school these are bad people you shouldn't be doing this and like asking us about a conversation and it was very clear this was not a taxi driver. This was, in fact, a, a member of detachment. And yeah, this is a secret service guy who had been uh, assigned to watch the school and seen us go in there and, and see us do our interview and was very, very inquisitive about what we were doing there. And as soon as he drops off at the airport, I don't think he even charged us with the fare. He wasn't a proper taxi driver at all. <laughs> and then as soon as he got at the airport, 20 minutes later, we get a call from the police chief, Tito's assistant, and said that that the police chief will meet you in Jakarta tomorrow. Because obviously the fact that we'd been in, in this Al-Maruki school had got back to the police chief and he wanted to quiz us about what happened there. And so he agreed to meet us. In this. So we went and, and the next day and turned up at his house, police headquarters, and, and spoke with him. And the head of the attachment, 88, the anti-terrorism branch was there as well. And so you got to interview him as well. I believe it's the first interview any head of the attachment, 88, has ever given to media. And spoke to them, and it was a very, very good interview. He was very charismatic. He's, he's kind of like the modern-day action hero in Indonesia. He's his poster like adorns at the outside of every police station and he like goes on jungle raids and, and himself and you know he likes to get get involved so uh -huh. we him and, and, and we asked him can we interview the the suicide bomber the and, and he was said yeah she's given a statement you that's fine you could interview her but they, they said that I, I should do it myself because she's obviously at the very conservative, pious Muslim woman. And so Febriana being herself a, a Muslim woman, it was better if she um, did it instead. And that's obviously fine. We wanted to make sure that 
she was comfortable and and also that way from Muslim woman to Muslim woman it, it probably elicited better answers than it was from an outs you know a male outsider uh, interviewing her it probably wouldn't have worked as well so Fabian and I got the interview and got got amazing stuff from the interview including that she was pregnant when we got the scoop that she was pregnant in prison so she had actually married her ISIS husband who she had never met via an ISIS fighter very famous ISIS fighter who's since died in Syria. So she was communicating online with um, this ISIS fighter in Syria. He set her up with a husband in Indonesia. They married online via Telegram. The wedding ceremony was grouped up in Telegram. Wow. And they met only briefly before the bombing was to take place. And they obviously spent, I think it was one night or two nights together before the bombing. And, you know, and she got pregnant. And so, yeah, we got that scoop from the interview. It's one of those stories where every step of reporting led to something else. They led to something else led to something else. It was just this kind of culmination of of everything which kind of came together. And and I I was there in the background kind of, maybe not in the background, but I was there kind of uh, being encouraging and playing my part, but it was 80% of it was was Trebriano. She was a phenomenal, she's a force of nature and a phenomenal journalist and, and really just shows that if you have the determination, the will and, and the, the courage to do stuff that you could really achieve amazing things in in this game. So yeah, it, it, that really opened my eyes a lot to what could be done. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. That's a crazy story of how, you know, uh, did you even end up using the stuff from like the, the Madras and talking to that guy, that part yeah. of it? Yeah, no, no, we used that, we used that in the story. I can send you a link. The story went through the kind of genesis of Islamic fundamentalism in Indonesia and a lot of it, looking back at like the Bali bombings, I mean a lot of that happened because these hardline Al-Qaeda affiliated jihadists from Indonesia were with Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and then when the US invasion and everything they all fled back home and that's where they started plotting attacks at home. And so the basis of the story was we now have a similar situation, had a similar situation with Indonesian ISIS in Syria and Iraq and so with the impending fall of ISIS, when if they were going to come home, would there be a, a similar upsurge in, in terrorist activity in Indonesia and around the region? And we have seen kind of sporadic incidents of that, but um, the piece is kind of looking into whether there would be a, a similar parallel, like post-ISIS spike in sort of homegrown attacks in Indonesia. So yes, the guy's name was, oh, Abdul Rahim. Abdul Rahim. He's a sh- the son of Abu ba- Bakar ba- Bashir, who okay. uh, he, he's in prison. He's uh, basically the top ISIS ideologue in Indonesia. So he is in prison, but he basically still publishes sermons through intermediaries and, and stuff, and, and is still like the main kind of rabble rouser for ISIS. His son does not support ISIS, although he, he was at Al Qaeda, but you know, apparently ISIS was one bridge too far for him. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, the, so they, they say the school does not support ISIS, but they still have some very uh, uncompromising interpretations of the Quran and, and jihad and this kind of thing. Although going around the school, I have to say the kids were lovely and the teachers were really doting and nice and yeah, it was very well maintained and it didn't have that kind of overt authoritarian or kind of conservative feeling about it. But then from what the police chief Tito told us, it's not about the curriculum, it's about the extracurricular activities which they have at the school, which tend to push kids towards a rather uh, a conservative interpretation of, of Islam. That was going to be my other question, whether it was scary interviewing this guy, whether it was like he could pull out a gun and kill you all or something like that. But it sounds like it wasn't like that. It, and, uh, 
they were very, very friendly, very hospitable in person. You know, in situations like this, it's always difficult to gauge quite how much, quite how much danger you're in. I didn't really feel like I was in danger. I think we probably would have just been asked to leave. At the worst, that would would happen. But certainly, the police and, and everyone who we interviewed afterwards definitely seemed to indicate that we were not safe. But it wasn't something which I was really aware of at the time. We were more just desperate to try and get get the interview. And also just listening to you tell this, it's like, just say the words like Ivy League for jihadists or interview with this police chief who goes along raids or this uh, female suicide bomber, much less female suicide bomber who's pregnant. Like, I... All of these could be stories. Did it go into one big story? Did you write a? Were there several different stories with all this in it, or how, how did that work? No, I, I just published the one story. Basically, had all of it in it. It kind of traces in, in small parts the reporting journey. I tried to write it in that way, in a kind of narrative where where it went through, but it kind of felt a little bit egotistical, like we were putting ourselves to the center of the story and a bit more long-winded. And I, so I, I kind of wrote it in a little bit more of a conventional feature and and attacked each element from a kind of developing the story so the reader's understanding so you could follow the story better because the way we reported it kind of shoved the gun and we were going in, in different places. We also went to the house where this female suicide bomber was arrested and I spoke to the neighbours and stuff and there was a controlled explosion there. So we toured around the apartment and everything and I spoke to the landlord. And it, it, was, it was one which could have been written in a few different ways, but we, in the end, we just put everything in, into the one story, which is, you know, because of the time style. We, we, we tend to do the big features and then not, you know, tackle a, a story for a while. We hit stuff once and then being a weekly magazine, it's, people don't want to pick up a magazine generally and read the say about the same subject four weeks in a row so it's yeah, yeah. Uh, hit stories at a inflection point or at a nadir or, or some other point and then try and do it justice with that and then unless there's a major escalation or development it's unlikely we're going to hit it again although sometimes we do with the Hong Kong protests and stuff. Uh, we're going into that again, I think, in the next few weeks. Definitely. I mean, at this point, I, I don't think we've got time to go into a whole other story, but are, are you covering any of the Hong Kong stuff? Or since you guys have such a big office down there, or not such a big office, but your main hub is down there, are they covering it from out of there? Yeah, they're, they're on the streets. They're covering it from Hong Kong. I, yeah, I could have gone down and, and helped out, but you know, there's lots of young, hungry journalists down there, and good for them to, to have a story which they can own and, and get their teeth into. So, and they're doing a fantastic job. We did a cover story a few weeks back. It was written by a colleague and good friend of mine, Philly Solomon, which was fantastic. You know, I, I helped out with reporting from the mainland about that and then kind of give my, you know, I was in Hong Kong for three years, so I have my own perspective from things. But you know, when, when I was in Hong Kong in 2014 for the umbrella protest, and we were on the streets getting tear gassed and working 12 hour days and stuff. And then when they did the magazine stories, they flew in Hannah Beach and Emily from Beijing to do the the magazine stories and uh, I always thought that was a bit of a bullshit decision and, and I, you know and at the same time I don't think I should be parachuted in from Shanghai to write about Hong Kong when we've got very able journalists on the ground there who are doing the legwork every day and should be able to continue reporting on that yeah no I totally agree that makes sense I mean, there are a million things I could ask you about, like the Dalai Lama, like Papua New Guinea, like I'm fascinated by all these things. But I know I'll get myself into trouble if we run too long when I have to later edit it down. So let's see if it's all right with you. uh, We'll do something next that I, I call the lightning round. That sound all right to you? Yeah, of course. Yep. Okay. First questions. 
What is usually the first thing you check when you wake up in the morning and you grab your phone or your computer? Uh, emails. Is that allowed? Or, I mean, uh, as a news source, I'd yeah, yeah. Check, as a news source, uh, the BBC app, the Asia, the Asia page of the BBC app, and then click through to the China page. Sure. And that feeds into the next question. What is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? Just the BBC? Do you look at any others? I mean, for China news, the SEMP is very well sourced. And, and if, if the story's not covered in the SEMP, we probably wouldn't cover it, uh, I think. So that is a good benchmark, I think, for, for me, just for the China coverage and, and what's there, what, what's happening at the moment. Sure. What is a journalistic publication that you read or listen to or watch just for fun? Well, I suppose The New Yorker. I mean, I'm never going to pick up story ideas from The New Yorker, but I just love the writing. It's, it's fantastic. And I love the, the long form stories in that. Sure. What's the best journalistic article, piece, whatever that you've consumed recently? I really enjoyed the New York Times piece on Notre Dame Cathedral Fire. I shouldn't say that because we have a cover story of our own about that, that this year. I was this week. But then the New York Times piece, with the, it was done very interactive and they had lots of embedded social media and graphics. And they really explained exactly how the fire spread and the challenges facing the firefighters and the response time and just how quickly it spread and everything. I, I thought it was done very, very well. Yeah, I saw that piece. That was amazing. I mean, I... I'll admit I didn't read every single word like I kind of, you know, scrolled through it, read the key chunks I was curious about, about the firefighting and stuff like that. But the, just the presentation was amazing. And the reporting, obviously, like they had talked to dozens of people to assemble, you know, this very detailed TikTok story. It was very good. Yeah, it was good. I, I'm more of a traditionist because I, I do appreciate that the, these modern interactive ways of presenting stories online, but sometimes these things they take like years to produce. And I could do sometimes wonder whether it's worthwhile. But then when you see them, they are fantastic and they do offer something extra. And it, you know, if you keep doing them, obviously things will get smoother and then soon enough they'll be very quick to do. I'm sure there'll be shortcuts and, and ways and there'll be WordPress widgets and stuff where you can get it done very quickly. Some, I mean, the amount of effort which is involved in producing this stuff and the, the big team is, is quite uh, extraordinary. For sure. Is there any particular subject matter you read into specifically that isn't related to your job? Uh, well, I mean, football. <laughs> I'm, I'm still um, one of those where if I pick up a British newspaper, I turn to the back page before I turn to the front page because I want to <laughs> check out the football news before anything else. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly scanning the football news. It's kind of a light relief. I, I kind of treat football or soccer, I should say, uh, as a, a kind of a soap opera. It's, it's, I don't take it too seriously, but it's just it's a guilty pleasure. And uh, transfer dealings and, and uh, reports and everything is, yeah, it's just great fun to keep tabs on. Sure, yeah. No, I, I've at least one other person is answered uh, baseball but yeah you get the you get the weirdos like don who's like i like reading about central asian history to unwind or something oh, like God. that <laughs> <laughs> is twitter important to you uh no I, I, I tweet very sporadically, normally just to promote my own stories. I don't engage in any kind of conversations or discussions with people on Twitter ever. I have a rule that if someone criticizes anything I write, I ignore them. If someone says something nice, I'll say thank you. And it keeps me in good stead. I know too many people who get wrapped up into these very sort of acrimonious and, and nasty debates on Twitter. And for me, it's a, kind of a new 
news gathering device. I can follow, you know, follow Reuters and, and, and AP and stuff. And so if I want to know, you know, to follow the breaking news and what's happening. But in, in terms of engaging with people, I just think it's a very toxic environment a lot of the time. And I, I, I honestly don't think I have the time. I, I see these great journalists who I really respect and they're constantly on Twitter commenting on, on everything. And I just don't know how they have the time to write when, when they're doing this. I mean, it, it's just, you know, you can get sucked into so many rabbit holes on Twitter and then you end up just wasting your entire day. Yeah, I, I have to spend my time more productively, I think, actually researching and writing and interviewing and reporting. Yeah, I find Twitter a, a very odd place. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I don't really understand how people have enough time for it. Like I, I try to tweet, I try, I'm getting a little bit better about it, but still like, you know, sometimes entire weeks go by and I won't like tweet anything just cause I don't know. It just slips my mind. I don't have time. Okay. What other social media do you use and how? Well, I mean, WeChat, if you can count out social media, is just an integral part of life. Instagram, I'm going more off social media these days. I don't know. I'm just, the idea of, yeah, posting stuff, I, I don't know. I, I think it's just because you're just constantly being asked to be in photographs and selfies and things. And, um, you know, I, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, but that's about it. I don't, I, I, and I, I very rarely post stuff these days. When, when I'm reporting, I tend not to post. I, I take photos when I'm reporting, but I tend not to put them on Instagram because I want to alert people to what I'm doing before the story comes out. And then when the story comes out, I, the idea is that I would post these great insider photos of the people I'm interviewing and, and stuff. But then I always forget about it and it just seems to be long ago and I, I never do. So um, I, yeah, I, I've kind of drifted away from social media recently. Yeah, I'm in, in the same boat. I, I'm always too nervous to post anything from what I'm reporting on to turn people onto it. So it's uh, the exact same thing. And then later I rarely post them. Um, um, the next uh, questions are yes or no questions. So the first one is Glenn Greenwald, yes or no? <laughs> hmm. I, I, I don't have a strong opinion about him. I'll, I'll say yes, just to be open-minded. Sure. Vice Media, yes or no? No. Any particular reason? You don't have to say. They have a bad reputation for paying freelancers. They have a bad reputation for working with journalists, friends of mine, when they corrupt stories and sensationalize and, and stuff. But I, I have never personally worked with Vice, so it, it's more hearsay, but from people who I know well. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, a lot of their stories do cross the line and thinking of, of going into to ISIS territory and stuff. I'm not sure exactly how that was arranged, but, you know, it was kind of dubious. So, yeah, I'll say no. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that much about them, but just, like, one person I know not even that well. Like, if the story she told me is true about the piece she did and what they did with it and how they treated her, then it is, yeah, pretty abhorrent. Next up, uh, WikiLeaks, yes or no? I mean, uh, yes to WikiLeaks in, in the beginning and, and no to what it's become now, I suppose. I don't think it's, I think it's evolved uh, over the years and its um, mission statement has been corrupted. It's a difficult one because, yeah, I, I, I feel that it's become more about one man and his ego and, and his kind of mission and, and less about the, um, the, the, greater, the greater good as they initially purported. But yeah, that's a tough one. I, I would initially in favor um but yeah i think it's become very problematic that makes sense so i'm guessing julian assange also a no for you yes yeah i would yeah but that that'd be a, a big no okay and then the wire season five yes or no if you've seen it oh yes yeah 
That's a big yes. Cool. And then out of the yes or no's, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you, you would have their career, who would it be? Uh, you. Um, ah. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I honestly don't know. I, yeah, um, no, I, I can't really think of anyone, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think I have one of the best jobs in journalism as it is. Like, I, I, you know, I have an amazing patch and work with amazing people, amazing publication. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't trade my job for any out there to be honest I'm very lucky sure That's it. I think it comes from not being like I said earlier like I, I didn't want to be a journalist from a young age so I never idolized other journalists I, I never grew, grew up thinking oh Jeremy Paxman or, or you know Walter Cronkite or, or something like this like I re, you know I just yeah right you didn't have an idol or anything like that yeah yeah. so I, I, a lot of these top names these literary figures uh, I they kind of they don't have a, quite the residence with me as, as maybe with, with many other journalists who, who you know have the goal set out from a young age. Sure. And then what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Ooh. Hmm. Uh, maybe, uh, how young? Whenever. I've had somebody, one person said, I would have gone back in time and not taken shots with this person at this bar. <laughs> like, <laughs> can be, you know, whatever you want. Ooh. I mean, there's so much. Basically, it's basically <laughs> do everything different basically no i i would say i would go back to myself in school age and say you have to work harder because i was always kind of a bright kid and didn't really have to work and still did well and then it got to a point where i wasn't doing well and i was just coasting along and i think i should have with the opportunities i had i should have done better at school but it, you know it, but it's double-edged sword because the path which i took has led me to where i am now and with my lovely wife and, and great job and so if i wouldn't want to upset that to be honest uh, you know, if I'd gone to a different university and then everything, it would have all been very different, I imagine. So I, I'm just very grateful for where I ended up today. But I, I, I definitely should have worked a bit harder in, in school. Sure. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists? I, I was thinking, I didn't think I'd read many journalism books, but I think I, pro I probably have done. I was going through them all and I was like, actually, well, yeah, I've probably read a lot. I, I really enjoyed this history of war correspondence called The First Casualty, which is really, really interesting and I very much enjoyed that but I'd probably have to go for the Zanzibar chest I think it's, it's Aidan Hartley about his experiences for Reuters in Africa covering various wars and conflicts there and it all intertwines his, his own family history in the region and uh, yeah I, that was a real eye-opener for me and just about cultural sensitivities and, and language and be able to be an outsider but empathize with people in these terrible situations and, and everything that was a, a a phenomenal book. It's been many, many years since I've read it, so I should probably go back and read it again. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll have to check it out. I had not heard of it. Let's see. Qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Uh, I mean, chef. I, I love cooking. I, I, you know, I'm constantly in the kitchen, so I, I wouldn't mind being a chef. That would definitely be uh, something I would like to pursue. But I could be a lawyer. I, I like arguing with people. I mean, that's part of the <laughs> as well. Um, so, yeah, I could do that. Uh, lawyer or chef, I think. Good answers. Okay. Yeah, that's it then. Do you feel good about things? Yeah, no, no, and that was extremely painless and, and uh, yeah, no, great fun. Before I stop recording, just wanted to say thanks so much for taking the time and coming on the podcast. No, no, absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on. 
That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Charlie Campbell of Time Magazine. I'll post links to some of the things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you write out a positive review saying what you like about the podcast. It helps get it more attention in Apple Podcasts and other apps. You can find us on Twitter at, at @foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag hashtag #foreignpod. And above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. Our show's music is a track called "Love Chances" by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our website. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, September 8th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.